Death Said Press presents Hot Iron and Cold Blood, an anthology of the Weird West. In these pages, you'll find stories by Joe R. Lansdale, Owl Goenbeck, Edward Lee, Ronald Kelly, Bree Morgan, Jeff Strand, Kenzie Jennings, Patrick R. McDonough, Brennan LaFaro, Jill Girardi, L. M. Labat, and more. Open window for submissions ends May 15th, 2022. For more details, go to deathsheadpress.com. The story of a boy who dreamed of becoming a man, but dreamed up a monster instead. It has hunted you since the summer of 1994, back when we confessed who we were through mixtapes. When every movie at the video store had dirty heads. You were 13 and thought you knew who you were. Only the shadow with too many teeth knew you better. It still does. And it won't stop. Not until you come home. Back to where it all began. Part cosmic horror, part coming of age story. Dirty Heads is a terrifying read from the author of House of Size, The Fallen Boys and A Place for Sinners. Out now. Looking for your next horror writing podcast fix? The This Is Horror podcast for readers, writers, and creators is the ultimate show for writing advice, tips, and a personal look into the lives of all your favorite authors. This is Horror Podcast. Listen in to long-form conversations with some of the best writers and creatives on the planet. Over 400 episodes with masters of horror such as Joe R. Lansdale, Chuck Palahniuk, Josh Mallerman, Joe Hill, Charlene Harris, Craig Clevenger, Ellen Datlow, Kathy Koja, and many more. The This Is Horror Podcast. Listen in at www.thisishorror.com. That's the This Is Horror Podcast for readers, writers, and creators. And welcome to Dead Headspace. I am your host, Patrick R. McDonough. Get serious, Brennan. Joined always by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hello, everybody. And today we're talking to a man that I have wanted on since before the show started. So it is long overdue. The author of Burner, as well as uh, Blood Roses, along with many other glorious books, Bob Ford or Robert Ford, because you go by both. So hello, Bob. Thanks so much for having us, guys. Appreciate it. Uh, let's just dive into it, man. What got you into horror? You know, I, uh, I'm an only child, and I grew up in the middle of nowhere in Maryland on a farm. And, uh, you know, no, nobody was really close by. I didn't really have close friends to play with or, you know, anything like that. So my parents kept feeding me a steady supply of books. 
And uh, both of them were always into things like the Twilight Zone and Tales from the Crypt. And uh, let's see, there was a series called Friday the 13th. You're probably too young for that one. Friday the 13th, it had nothing to do with the movie. Oh, the show. Yeah, yeah, that was... Yeah. Um... It was like this haunted antique shop. That's and it, yeah. Down the antiques and, and the, or the items and the thing. But any, any show like that, I mean, they were glommed onto that stuff. And I just kind of grew up being around it. Uh, you know, my my grandmother used to tell ghost stories all the time from when she was a kid and talk about seances and whatever. So it just sort of seeped into my bones when I was a kid. And, uh, you know, I've, I've just always been drawn to, to writing it and, and, and reading it and, and just, you know, kind of like I say, it just grew up seeped into my bones. I feel like you talked about that on Brian, uh, Brian Keen's podcast. Uh, that was... It, I feel like it was you, man. It, it was years ago, but it was one of the earlier seasons. Um, you know, I didn't think I was going this direction, but let's, if you are comfortable with it, let's talk about that. Was that your first podcast, uh, being a guest on his show? Uh, on Brian? Um, honestly, I have no idea anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. Um, it sounds like it, it, it could have been. Uh, that was kind of in the early days when people really jumping on, you know, starting kickstarting podcasts and things. Mm-hmm. After that, I, I've lost. I mean, I don't want to be that guy, but I've I've lost count. I, I have no idea anymore. Um, especially when you're really hot and heavy and you're promoting a book, you know, it's it's you know sometimes you get asked to be on a podcast. Sometimes I've reached out and asked other people or whatever. But yeah, I, I have no idea. I, I'm I'm pretty sure Brian's probably was the first though. I'll say that. Hmm. Okay, uh, Brennan, I don't want to hog all the air, so you go, please. <clears throat> and that's when that's when you still had to uh, drive to Brian's house to be part of the podcast. No, no Zoom, no Skype. Exactly. <laughs> that's a cool atmosphere, though. You know, I, I we definitely get a little bit of that with um, the video. You know, I can't even. I remember when we started this out, like half first season is just audio and it's just not the same, but, you know, get a whole bunch of writers in one room and just talk about it like that. That sounds like a blast. And it's so cool that the episodes are are up there for people who, you know, were not privy to them when they were coming out brand new. People can still go back and check that out like a time capsule. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, there's, you know, there's a lot of really beneficial information. A lot of people I know put on podcasts, you know, the audio only version podcast, and they'll throw it on in the background while they're, you know, they're exercising or, or, or doing whatever. And uh, there's still a lot of a really beneficial information to be learned from people that you guys interviewed, you know, back then. So that's no, awesome. Thanks, man. Um, Brennan, was there a follow up to that? No, it's just a statement. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, you know, going to scares of care, that, that was a totally different environment. Like hearing, I heard Brian talk about it for like two or three years when I first started uh, listening to his show. And um, it's just, it's, it's so different because it's these people that you talk to. It wasn't my first experience, but like you talk to people on the internet and, and meet them. Um, I don't even think Brian used to do this, but when I was in my adolescence, I would play uh, Counter-Strike online and i met a bunch of uh fellow players uh you know it's like terrorists versus counter terrorists uh first person shooter and we would go to like uh land centers um just like a local uh place to play the game and 
I was young, but my next door neighbor also played. And so is his older brother. So that's why my parents let me go with him. But it was right. really my first experience in that scenario was super weird because it's like you're we didn't see each other in video. Um, mm-hmm. So we just heard their voice and hearing their voice and and really seeing what they look like, because this is the early aughts. Um, so the pictures, they weren't horrible, but they were great. And it, it was, it was so bizarre. So going back to scares of care, that was being like in a world where everyone gets what you're doing and what you think. And they're right there yeah. with you. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 And it's, it, it's really, it, it really is important because writing is so freaking solitary, you know, as it is. Um, and, you know, to, to go to a convention like that, just being around like-minded people and you know during during the con well you you've seen it during the actual convention day you know it's crazy it's heck yeah. <laughs> you're meeting people you're doing you know it's 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 non-stop but when the day unwinds and the dealer's room and vendor's room closes then you can kind of take a breath for for a little bit and relax and that's when you catch up with those people and who've been doing the same thing hustling you know all day long same as you but that's when that kindred spirit thing really kicks in and you're able to talk about, you know, things that you can't talk about. If you try to talk about half the shit that we talk about to your coworkers, they're going to be like, oh, yeah, sure. Hey, Joey, we got to call somebody to come down here. You know, they, you, you know, you can't talk about that kind of stuff, um, you know, but it's it's uh, there's there's nothing like it. And it really helps break things up and get your batteries recharged to get back to doing what you're doing when you go back to, you know, daily life all over again. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Plus, on top yeah. of all that, like you get to see people for kind of who they really are. And I don't mean that in any kind of bad way. It's just, you know, you, you don't necessarily I'm not saying everyone should go with no walls up, but like you kind of can be yourself. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Yeah. To a degree. So I, I want to jump in with something. Yeah, to a degree. That's, <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> um. So, you know, I'm thinking what you said about writing being such a solitary thing and how you absolutely cannot just walk into work and start talking about, you know, what your work in progress is about, especially, you know, I'm thinking of Burner in my head right now. That would not go well. Um, But, you know, it's it's something that Patrick and I probably take for granted to a degree because we get to sit down once or twice a week with like minded people and just like sit and talk about writing and about horror in general for an hour and a half. So w- with, with you feeling that solitary, uh, you know, atmosphere, I suppose, what do you do to recharge your battery between conventions? Uh, well, being, being online and, and being able to talk to some people online is really helpful, but you know, I've, I've just honestly, the past couple of years, I have been keeping myself so damn busy that the, uh, the, the solitary part of it hasn't really affected me too much. I've been kind of head down, you know, in, in the laptop, but uh, no, being online with social media and, and being able to privately chat with, with other writers, that's been really beneficial. Hmm. And you can go, you know, I, there's, there's friends of mine, writer friends of mine that I can just vent for a while and they'll vent back. I'm like, okay, you good. Yep. You good. Yep. And then we go back to doing what we're doing. Um, you know, but in the, in the past, you know, I I had a weird, uh, Facebook memory pop up for me the other day. I was going to repost it, but I'm like, nah, I'll I'll just move on. Uh, in my former 
former work life, I worked as a marketing director at a credit union. And uh, I came down to the office kitchen one day and somebody had bought from the grocery store this really bizarre cake. And it had a icing sheep head and like feet that popped off the side of the cake. And I just tucked a napkin beneath it and wrote, are the lambs still screaming, Clarice? And I, got my, I got my coffee to the left. <laughs> it took about 40 minutes before somebody walked in and said, did you write that shit out there in the kitchen? Like, yeah, I did. So, but um, you got to keep people on your toes a little bit. But no, the, the solitary thing, it is, it is a real, it is a real thing. And it used to be, you know, when I started writing, uh, the, I'm going to show my damn age now, but, you know, I started writing my first novel when I was 19 and I was co-writing it with a, a lady in public relations that I knew. And, uh, I went to college. She was still in Maryland. We were mailing chapters back and forth <laughs> to each other. Wow. You know, I, I had an old Smith Corona word processor. So at least if I was editing, I didn't have to retype the damn thing all over again. <laughs> it was this weird little word processor that I could go in and edit on screen and I was ready to type. I basically just kept feeding it typewriter paper and it would just type the damn thing out. It wasn't even a printer. It would just literally type it out on its own auto type. Um, but yeah, there, there were, you know, we would phone call once every week and a half when we would get a new chapter from each other. And, but it was, uh, yeah, I, I much prefer today, you know, where, where you can call up somebody or, or get on chat, you know, online and just say, you know, holy hell, did you, you know, did you see this or, or whatever? It, it makes life at least a little less lonely when you're working on things. Yeah, yeah, that that's true. Um, I want to bring up Ronald Kelly specifically about isolation because I did. We did ask him about when he wrote for Zebra, um, and you know, barely heard from readers. Sure. Didn't really have a super lot of communication with editors. Didn't get a choice in the cover art, which it makes sense for a bigger print, you know, publisher. But yeah, I mean, it, it really just didn't sound like he had a whole lot. The dude wrote um, uh, eight or ten thick fucking novels in like six or seven years uh -huh. and it feels like they're just kind of treated like slaves man where they just they're not they're getting treated like shit sadly yeah sadly so yeah that that <laughs> i'm getting so off track i guess but <laughs> That just made me think of how Ron talked about his days in the '90s uh, working for Zebra, and it, I know he for I know for a fact he is just so uh, so much um, he prefers this this era, and yeah, I like it too. I, I'm glad I don't have to pay for like ink or printer, uh, you know, ribbons of paper and printer paper or whatever, hmm. and I don't have to snail mail everything. Me too. I'm really glad we're past that point. The um, first novel, is that available or is that kind of trunked? It, it, well, here's the thing. Uh, with that one, it's trunked for sure. We wrote this novel and 
it was set in the Antarctic hmm. and it dealt with an oil rigging crew, oil drilling crew that was down there. And um, there were some supernatural elements. They got really ticked off that they were contaminating the earth and attacked the oil rig and you know a whole bunch of other things. So I don't know if it was any good or not. I haven't even read this thing in years. But I know at the time when we were done, we got it. We, we edited it all. We polished it up to what we thought was the best. And she took care of it. She was in PR. She sent it out to the top five. We got feedback. Uh, I don't remember exactly which publisher it was, but we got feedback. Because then you were sending the first three chapters. That's all they wanted to say. Okay. We got feedback, and they were redline, handwritten, handwritten redline notes. And on page four, there was a line crossed through and it said, your story starts here. I want you to rewrite this, polish things up, send it back to me for another look. Now, today, if I got that feedback from the top five, I would be out in the yard doing a Snoopy dance. And then I would grab a case <laughs> of Red Bull and I'd be sitting down going, okay, I'm going to have this shit done by the end of the week. Back then, I had no idea how important that was. Not oh. a clue. And the lady I wrote with, she didn't have a clue either. Oh. Um, and uh, something, her life went to hell in a handcart or something, and she kind of disappeared. She went off the radar. And uh, so we never got around. But yeah, it's trunked. I still have it electronically somewhere, uh, but it never, yeah, I, don't, I, I doubt that one will see the light of day. That's crazy. Uh, yeah. Now looking back, I'm like, man, I could have had a, I could have had a published novel at 19. That would have kickstarted a whole bunch of things off then. Ooh, yeah. Um, but we had started writing a second novel, and uh, when she dropped off radar, I basically I have that novel set aside. A couple of years ago, I ripped out all of the chapters that she wrote. I trashed them and put those aside. And uh, I started rewriting it. And then I think I, I set it aside because I was working on the compound for uh, Thunderstorm Books. Hmm. And uh, I said, yeah, whatever. If I get back to that second novel and rework it, I'll get there at some point. I got other things I got to do ahead of that. But, but uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll see. We'll see. It still might see the light of day. We'll, we'll see. That's incredible. I've never heard that mm -hmm. story from you. Brennan, what are your thoughts on that? I. I think it's, you know, kind of a neat start to the whole collaboration thing, which is something you've explored, um, you know, several times. Actually, I wanted to yeah. bring up uh, one with uh, Mr. Bowden. Um, yeah. You and you and John Bowden are frequent uh, collaborators and you don't have to mail each other your work anymore. So <laughs> no. tell us a little bit about the process, uh, collaborating in general. But, you sure. know, <laughs> if you want to focus uh, with John. Sure. I, well, I, you know, it, like I say, it had been uh, it had been over 20 years since I collaborated the first time. And since that worked out so damn well, I stayed away from it and just focused on working on my own stuff. And uh, and John and I have been longtime friends. And he approached me one day after uh, I was doing a reading. I think it was my novella Ring of Fire. And. Uh, 
it talks about some crazy backwoods characters and certain things. And John came up after the reading and said, I bet your family and my family could have a really great cookout together. <laughs> and so we just started laughing a little bit. And he said, you know, we should really think about writing something together. And uh, I had been finishing up a couple projects and uh, I have an old scrapbook that I ke I've kept probably now, it's probably 30 years old, but I used to cut out the strangest newspaper articles I could find <laughs> and use them for idea generation. And uh, I found a clip, I was flipping through it, and I found a clip about uh, a pastor down south who was accused of trying to kill his wife with rattlesnakes because he was a snake handler in his church. And I think they actually turned it into a documentary uh, like a year or two ago. And, uh, but I, I read this thing and I sent it to John, I took a photograph of it. And I sent it to John, I said, you know, I think we might be able to turn something, turn this into something if we, if we kick it around. And, uh, we started working on rattlesnake kisses out of the gate, the end product. There's not a damn thing to do with that newspaper article whatsoever. <laughs> But John and I, uh, we just, we come from very similar backgrounds. You know, we, we can speak very fluent backwoods talk. And uh, he and I just kind of, kind of meshed really well together, working together. And when we worked on Rattlesnake Kisses, we had the kernel of an idea. John wrote the first chapter and sent it to me. And I was floored by it. And I rolled up my sleeves and I said, okay, no, we're, 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 we're digging into this. Let, let's go. And uh, we would we would write a chapter or two and send it back and forth to each other and just kind of go from there. But we didn't outline a damn thing. It was pantsing it the whole way. I mean, we were wow. making it up on the fly, but it just it was just so much fun and so exciting to see what he was going to do next. And, you know, there was sometimes he emailed me. I'd finished the chapter and, and text or call him. I'm like you rat bastard. I can't believe you did that or whatever, you know, he'd, and he'd laugh and do the same thing to me. Um, but we had so much fun developing this, this world, this town called Steelwater that we continued uh, with uh, the second in the series called Caddy Wampus. We were originally going to call it um, the first novel rattlesnake kisses. We were originally going to call it knuckle bucket. And knuckle bucket was the nickname was a slang term for a Southern gambling dice type of bar. It was a speakeasy type of thing. Oh, and, uh, and so we, we, as we worked on it, we continued to work on it. It changed into rattlesnake kisses. And now we just set the whole series is called the knuckle bucket tang series. <laughs> so we're, we're about, I'd say we're about three or four chapters away from finishing the third book in the series called Black Sav. And they're all standalone novellas. That's the thing. They're all standalones. They're set in the same world and that's their connection. But book number three, I think we're, I think that's floating around 56,000 words right now. So it's, it's got a little heft to it. It's got some beef to it. And it's, it's been such a blast working with John. Yeah. Yeah. Uh you uh john chad and oh man i'm forgetting who else was on but that podcast that was on a 
was it paper cuts? God, I yeah, can't think. Yeah, paper cuts, yeah. I got young dad mush brain from my little guy keeping <laughs> me up. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but yeah, that was a great conversation because, you know, like I, there's really nothing more enjoyable than being a movie, a book, or a podcast or whatever, where you can feel the love between the people talking to each other. Like it's real. Yeah. And that's what you yeah. guys have. Nah, they're such great dudes. I mean, like, you know, Chad, Chad is such a talented guy. And, you know, getting we we had always kicked around the idea of working on a project together. Mm. And uh we had started, we had thrown around a couple ideas, and this this uh this uh opportunity came up for us to each write a single novella each and and sort of thread them together a little bit and uh so the opportunity came and we jumped on it we jumped on that so fast and uh the the i tell you the the trio of novellas they should ship them with with kleenex to white to white people's eyes they're, they're gonna break people in half i have no doubt about it uh, but I still think that we are going to work on a project, truly work on a project together as sort of a round robin type of thing. And it's going to be a single, single piece of work. Holy shit. Uh, people Three writers. Yeah. People have been itching for that for a while. So yeah, instead of a, it's going to be a three-way collaboration. I, I, th- I still think we're going to pull that off. I, th- I think it's going to work. Oh, so man. I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you what the kernel of the idea is, but it's, <laughs> it's going to be a blast. I mean, yeah. I, I want to read it already just because, you know, you guys are both uh, three. Sorry, three. I just can't get that out. I can't believe <laughs> you three are going to write a book together. You three are yeah, very good writers. Yeah, they, yeah, they're such good dudes. Hey, Brennan, I think it's time that we dive into Burner because this book, for me, uh, makes me want to ask you. We've talked about it off here, how we feel about Jack Ketchum, uh Bob. <laughs> so uh, from, I, I don't think I flat out ask you, but. Maybe you told me, I can't remember, but was there influence from Ketchum in this? Cause it really felt like he was riding shotgun with you during this ride. Oh, man. Dude, there, there's, there's the influence from Ketchum among, among almost everything that I write. I mean, oh, you know, okay. You know, Dallas is one of the greats. You can't, you can't, he's, you know, he's always been an amazing guy. Um, you know, both professionally and personally, he was amazing. But with, with burner, that was, that was another thing, you know, that, damn scrapbook I mentioned earlier Mm. you know I was uh I think I was finishing up I think I was finishing up Rattlesnake Kisses with John and uh and it was one of those things I you know you always have to okay what's next what's next yeah and uh, I sat down and was flipping through this you know I've reached a point now where I look through my idea notebook or whatever and you kind of get a feel for whether this is a bigger concept for a novel or whether it's, you know, just a short story or, or whether it's a little shorter, it's a novella. You kind of get a feel for where the, where the concept gauges now. Hmm. And I had read an article about a Japanese woman whose husband had a, had a, uh, a heart attack. And in the hospital, when she was there, he just said, I'm sorry. And then he died. That was it. <laughs> and she's like, what is that? You know, but it wasn't like, I'm sorry I didn't live longer. I'm sorry, whatever. She had no idea what he was apologizing for. 
And she came to realize he had been telling her that he was going to this job for ever. No one knew who he was there. Whatever he was doing for his day job or paying the bills, this wasn't it. No one knew who he was. And I kept looking for a follow-up to this and I couldn't find anything. And it was like a paragraph long article. It wasn't very long. Wow. But that, that, that setup really, really sunk into my skin. And it's one of those things that maybe not so much today because everyone has a cell phone, Mm -hmm. but years ago, a guy or a woman could walk out the door in the morning and come back home in the evening. And the truth is, they could tell you, I work for company X. But do you really know? Do you really know what they did their entire day? No, you don't care. It's just the end of the week. Are the bills paid? Is everything? Are we, are we happy? That's it. No one, you don't know. So that idea just kicked around in my mind and uh, collided with, with, you know, some other case studies that I read that dealt with human trafficking and those two things just collided right on the spot. And uh, I started writing notes longhand. And uh, I think I'd written about, about a dozen pages or so of, of longhand notes. And I was like, okay, clearly this is the one, this is what's next. All right. And the next day I dug into it. And it was like the process for writing burn was like nothing else I've ever worked on. I I usually write generally kind of slow, at least I used to, but I wrote the first draft of burner in a month. I was angry at myself for stopping writing. (laughs) And and, and it was really unusual. There were times where I was typing fast enough that I couldn't, I felt like I couldn't catch up. (laughs) It's a thick book. That's why I'm holding it up. It's a little, it's a little light. It, I think it comes in about 70,000 words, I think. So it's, it's slightly, slightly shy of a, of a regular novel, but. Bob, 70,000 words in a month is a lot. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it is for me too, but yeah, it, it was an unusual process start to finish. It was. I have heard the only thing that, and I believe it because of who said it, it was Scow that wrote it might've been 50,000, like a couple days. I can believe him doing something insane like that, but man, even 70,000 in a month, if that was my only job, I feel like my brain would feel like it was melting. How did you feel like physically? How did you feel? I felt like I had run a marathon at the end of the month. <laughs> I believe it. Yeah. No, I, mm-hmm. I, I, uh, when I got the first draft done, well, the, the original draft had probably another, um, I think about another 11 or 12,000 words in it. Mm. And I sliced it all out because even though it just, it just, it just didn't work by the time I was done. So I cut those out in the editing process, but yeah, at the end of that month, you no, know, I felt like I, I felt like I got hit by a train. I was like, holy shit, I actually take the end on this. Like, no, I, I felt like I was ready to collapse. Um, and the first couple of days, I didn't know what to do with myself. Hmm. I had been running on such high adrenaline, you know, cranking this stuff out that those first couple of days, I was like, you know, I was like, now what the hell do I do? No, I just, I just felt useless. Like I didn't know what to, I, didn't, I had no purpose for the first couple of days. Um, but it, 
it, it was just, like I say, it was such a weird process for me. Um, and then just reviewing the, you know, doing the research, um, you couldn't shake that off. There was a couple of times I didn't feel like I could take enough showers to wash off the research that I had done because it was some brutal stuff that I had read, you know, from real life case studies and, 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 ah, it was just brutal, brutal, brutal stuff. And diving, man. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's important to add if, you know, for, for any listeners who are avid readers, but maybe not necessarily writers, I think it's important to add that, I mean, there's no in my opinion, there's no hyperbole to what you're saying right now about feeling like you ran a marathon and feeling like you got hit by a truck. I mean, you, as a writer, like I've had that day where you get in 5,000 words. I've had that day, that that month where you write, you know, 50,000 words, <laughs> never, never 70 or 90, but, um, and it really is uh, mentally exhausting. Um, and it's, it's one of those things you might not realize if you've never done it but yeah just kind of that effort of you know chugging that train along um and it certainly doesn't help that you know with su with such heavy material and you know that i'm glad you talked about the the research i thought it was such a necessary afterward that you added to the book with the statistics yeah. that you found yeah. um and just knowing that like look this isn't this isn't a story I'm telling flippantly. This is a real problem. And I, you know, to the best of my ability, I tried to approach it with care, but also with authenticity. And that's kind of what I want to throw at you is how do you approach a topic like this with care, but also authenticity? Well, for Burner, like I say, I, I knew the topic, man. I, I knew in order to do it proper justice, that it was going to have to be brutal uh, because, you know, real life human trafficking, real life sex trafficking at times is an incredibly brutal thing. A lot of the case studies that I had read, a lot of the documentaries that I'd watched, I had written certain scenes into Burner into the first draft. I cut them out because they were so far over the top that it felt as if I was solely writing extreme horror for the purpose of writing extreme horror. And the most ridiculous part of it is it was real. It was based on real things. Mm. Um, those were the, those were the days where I was like, I can't take enough showers to get this out of my head right now, but I knew it was going to have to be written in a brutal manner. And I just, I just really buckled down and did the research. I think there's there are a lot of things that I've that I've written, but to do the homework properly first and let that rattle around in your head, I think that brings an authenticity and sincerity to what you're writing, uh, especially a respect for, for something that I was doing. Absolutely, there are some horrific, terrible things that happened in Burner. But I just did the best I could to write them in my voice. And, and, you know, approach them with a respect because of the topic matter, because I didn't, I didn't want to push it to the point of writing extreme horror. That's not something I was ever really interested in writing is just extreme horror for the sake of grossing people out or having a gore fest or anything like that. That's never really been my thing. It's always been the character driven material. You know, the, the characters of the story 
oh, and by the way, she happens to be trafficked right now. Mm. You know, even even with my even with uh, um, you know the compound, it was about the characters. It was about the 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 mother and the or the father and the daughter primarily. Oh, and by the way, a zombie apocalypse is happening. It was always, you know, all most everything that I've ever written has been really forcefully character driven, uh, because that's that's what really interests me is the is the people, the characters behind everything. Hmm. All right. So with with that in mind, the whole characterization thing actually that kind of ties into the next thing I wanted to ask about. Um, now, I I think one of the things that makes this novel something that is you know, as hard as it was for you to walk away from writing it, it's equally hard to walk away from, from reading it. The pace is just breakneck. And I feel like a lot of that has to do with, uh, call it the framing, if you will. So it tends, it, you know, we go between the two main characters and it's a now chapter followed by two then chapters. And all I can think um, is a drum set playing a three, four rhythm. You got like bass, snare, snare, bass, snare, snare. And it's throughout the whole book, you know, it, I mean, it's, it's hard to say, you know, exactly what's going to happen. Cause you absolutely don't, but like <laughs> you, you're kept at this kind of uh, this breakneck tempo throughout yeah. because of that. Um, so how much of that was intentional? And could you speak a little bit to the now versus then framing? Sure, sure, sure. I have always uh, loved unique structure. You know, when I first saw Pulp Fiction, <laughs> when you see Bruce Willis and his girlfriend get on the chopper, I, you know, I turned to my buddy in the theater. I'm like, that was a damn good movie, man. And I'm waiting for the credits to roll up. You know, and I see Bruce going, Zed's dead, baby, Zed's dead. And I'm like, all right, this, this is awesome. I would watch this again. And no, it's not done. Then it cuts to, you know, it's still more. And I sat back down in the seat. I was like, that was supposed to be the end. Like, All right, I'm, I'm in now. Now, now you got my attention. Um, seeing things like that, watching movies like uh, Memento, where the entire movie plays in reverse, you know, uh, I've always. Or that Seinfeld episode. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <Indeed. yeah. laughs> exactly. Exactly. But I've always loved and been drawn to things that have a very unique story structure. And uh, season one of uh, True Detective, mm. 100% a massive inspiration for the structure of, of how Burner was, uh, was constructed. You know, and I loved, I loved, you know, you, you mentioned the, 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 the pace was very fast. I love very tight chapters. Because it forces the reader, as you guys probably figured out when you were reading it, it forces you because you're like, damn it, what now I need to know what happened next. And the the you know, then and now structure was something that I pulled in together versus the interviews for both uh, women characters, because it was a good breather. The, the interviewing that was happened, uh, you know, present day, that was a breathing area because everything else is such mm. breakneck speed. The interviews were primarily dialogue with very, very little action. And it gave the reader, uh, you, know, a, you know, a couple pages at a time to take a breath and go, okay. But it also allowed me to fill in small details 
small clues, small hints about what was to come. And it was just something that that felt right for me to to build it and structure this way. And I'm glad it I'm glad it worked out because I wasn't really <laughs> sure to be honest. <laughs> um, but uh, but no, that's something that gets mentioned a, a lot, an awful lot in the reviews. And uh, so I'm glad it glad it hit the mark with you guys. I <laughs> am. Well, and the structure almost reminded me a little bit of like when you when you have a book or even a short story that just has a, an opening line that grabs you, that sets up intrigue, and you you know you you read that first line, you're like, well, I got to find out what happens next. Yeah. Just that whole idea of like starting out with here's where Iris is. Here's where Iris was. Well, how the hell did we get to that? Yeah, yeah. what um, happened in the middle of all this? Yeah. 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 It yeah, felt- you, you mentioned a, a drum rhythm, and that is that is a really good analogy for it. Because, and I, and I knew once I set that original structure for both Audrey and Iris, that became something, like you say, you're not sure what to expect from the plot line, from the story. But you know what to expect as far as the structure. And I felt that was a good slot because now you know what's coming next as far as timeline and, and then and now and, and, and everything in between. So but uh, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad that was a, you know, something that stuck out to you, man, really. And also, I don't think we covered Iris and Audrey, the connection. We're not going to say what it is, but <laughs> like I remember at one point, I think it was 25% in. And I was like, David Ford, I think I understand what burner is. I didn't. I mean, I did <laughs> to some extent, but like, not really. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's really interesting. It felt like um, there's a lot of, my wife doesn't like horror, but she likes uh, true crime. Mm-hmm. And, and I will argue this to death, but that is, a subgenre of horror. And uh I mean it could be pretty fucked up true crime. And oh yeah, big time. The way the best my, not the best, my favorite ones, they do what you did. They do the reenactment and it can get crazy or whatever and it jumps to the dialogue and it, it pressurizes the situation. And when you finally hit that point right before everything explodes. Like, I'm pretty sure I said, holy shit. And then I read, the, you know, what happens between the two. Mm-hmm. And the, the saddest part of all of it is I could see someone doing, I'm just, I'm trying to think of how to word this without ruining uh, the, the, the spoiling it. But I could see someone doing what one of the characters did in order to, make the other character have a bad time. <laughs> I guess that's yeah. the best way to put it. Yeah. Well, and, and that's the, that's the thing. And I didn't, I sort of knew, well, the original ending was completely scrapped that, that 10, 11,000 words I mentioned, yeah. that was all cut out. That was my original ending. So I, I, I destroyed all that. Okay. I re- yeah. I, I reached a point where I kind of wasn't sure about the in between. Hmm. So when the when the when the characters from where they were in the very beginning to the middle to the end, it definitely there is sort of a strange arcing situation that happens with their their characters from a high and a low in their For personality. Sure. 
And it really puts certain readers into a gray area where they may get angry or they may sympathize. And I've had readers tell me that and, and message me or, or tell me directly saying, damn you, you know, you really pushed me into this gray area where I didn't know how to feel about this anymore. And I was like, well, good luck with that. And you know, in, the, in the middle of my mind, I'm like, hot damn, that's exactly what I wanted to do is to push you. And again, you know, I mentioned earlier, I think that's what art is supposed to do. It's supposed to be thought provoking. It's supposed to do that kind of thing. Yeah. So I'm just, yeah, I'm, I'm glad I hit the mark with this one. And that's what people are. That's what people are. They're not all good and all. And we can, yeah, we can like, I can eat, I can even admit this. I can really dislike this one person. It can all be valid, but there's still good qualities about that person. Yeah. You know? Oh yeah. Most definitely. And when you, you kind of did what uh, George R. R. Martin did with game of Thrones you think you hate this one character, but then you're like, I'm starting to, I'm starting to like them or I'm starting to feel bad for them. So seriously, man, I think it deserves to be on the same shelf as, as Ketchum's Girl Next Door. It really just executes that's, it that well. That's kind words, pal. I appreciate that. Yeah, man. Uh, no, it, it was it was quite something to work on, but I, I was honestly, I was I was glad to finish the edits and move on. <laughs> I was I was ready to move on to something lighter. Uh, I brought something like that up about Ketchum when we had the extreme horror panel, and yeah. uh, I because I I kind of never thought about it until we were talking, and I'm like, I bet it. From what I hear, Dallas was a super sweet guy, and I bet that was yeah. All writers, man, we're driven. We have to write that story, so I bet that really was just kind of like a huge boulder that was lifted off his shoulders, like it, like yeah. Burner was with you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, like I say, I, I turned I turned attention to something. Uh, I, I I still feel it's probably the scariest novel that I've written. Um, but yeah, I had to turn attention from something that was a little too close to real life with Burner. So uh, yeah, I'm still still waiting. I've got I've got the the novel Dead Pennies. It's out waiting with. Uh, I'm not going to say who with right now, but it's been waiting a bit. Dead pennies. Uh, yeah, dead pennies is a uh, a term. I, I I had a part-time job years ago, and uh, a guy that I was one of my coworkers, he 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 we were talking one day and he realized I wrote horror. And uh, he said, You got a blog? And I said, Well, I said, you know, it was this was early on. I said, Yeah, I'm kicking one around right now. He's like, You should name it something cool like dead pennies. And I was like, What is that? what does that mean? Why did you say that? What does that even mean? He's like, I don't know. It sounds cool. And then he just kind of wandered off. And I'm like, all right. I'm like, well, it does sound cool, but you know, it's stuck in my mind. It didn't mean anything for my blog, but it's stuck in my mind. And so when I was wrapping up the edits on burner, <clears throat> I was switching gears and this, this damn phrase, dead pennies came back to me. And, uh, you know, when you, you know, some, you know, when you're a kid, I don't know if you guys did it, but some kids they'll, they'll run out and they'll put a penny on a railroad track. Oh yeah. It flattens, it. It flattens it. Yeah. Flattens yeah. it or whatever. Or, you know, you'll, you'll sometimes you'll get change and a penny will be twisted or bent or chipped or whatever. Well, eventually when they become damaged too much, 
in, in this novel of mine, mm. my theory was the U.S. Mint or the, the Treasury Department basically goes, nah, that's unfit for human circulation. We're yanking it. And they refer to them as dead pennies. Now, that idea combined with an old hospital set years ago where orphaned, deformed, mentally challenged children were sent and abandoned because they were ashamed. That was a shame to have these kids in society. And the nickname that the hospital staff gave them was Dead Pennies. Jesus Christ, Bob. <laughs> they, were un- they were unfit for human circulation. Oh, my God. It sounds so fucked up, but I want it in my brain now. That sounds so, horrible. Yeah. One way or the other, you guys will be reading this one in the next year. One, one way or another. Excellent. Uh, but yeah, that one, that one, there were moments where I truly creeped my own shit out. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to step away from the laptop. I'm glad it's the light of day for a minute. Um, but yeah, that, that was by far the scariest thing that I've ever written, but it was fun because again, it was much lighter than burner. Mentally, it was much lighter than burner for me. To work. Really? Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't sound it. Uh, yeah. Well, at, like, le- at least, you know, at least it wasn't dealing with human trafficking. I mean, it wasn't, you know, burner. I could read about in the news tomorrow and be like, mm, yeah, okay. You know. That's true. I live right, as you know, as you both know, I live right near Atlantic City. So yeah. I know at one point that was like the highest sexually trafficked uh, city. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. And being so close to Philadelphia. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a strange corridor, you know, of, of, of trafficking. But now nah, Dead Pennies was just such a blast to work on. But I had a lot of fun just creeping myself out with with uh, certain things. So with who? Yeah, hopefully, like, with who did you write movie. it with? Huh? Who'd you write it with? Oh, just me. Just me. Oh, oh. my own novel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. I, I thought Yeah, no, I just had a lot of fun just writing, coming up with ideas and creeping myself out. It was a blast. I thought that was the one where you're like, I'm not gonna say who I co-wrote this way, then I tried tricking you. Oh no, 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 no. It's, <laughs> no, no. no it's it's said with a publisher right now. So I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna mention the publisher's name, but I've definitely don't. Yeah, um, I'll hear some good news soon. Brennan, off to you, sir. I want to throw one more thing out there about Burner before we move on. And I'm retreading ground a little bit, but uh, it reminded me of an experience I had reading uh, Samantha Koyesnik's True Crime, where you get to a point where some of the choices, and I feel like, you know, to me, I don't know if this was your intention, but to me, you know, the choices made under pressure was a constant theme throughout that book. You just it's certainly something that grabs the attention and you almost as a reader have to come to terms at some point with the fact that you might not be able to sympathize with a character's decision because you can't put your, you're physically unable to put yourself in the position that they're in. Um, There's, you know, there's a, and there's a couple good examples, but I think the first strongest one 
to me came, I'd say probably around 70% of the way through the book. I wish I had like a page number or something to give you, but Bob, you, I'm sure you know exactly know what exactly I'm talking what about. talking about, yeah. And yeah. it was, and it, and it was just that that's an unbelievable decision. I can't understand that. I can't come to terms with that. And I'm also in a privileged position in my life where I will never have to. I hope, God. <laughs> right. I hope not. Either. Shit, I just jinxed myself. I hope um, not. Either. What does his but, wife really do for a living? <laughs> she, she she stays at home. What does she do? So you, I am so, making a living. So you think? <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Oh, my kids are tattletales. They tell on her. Um, but no, I, I guess there's no question there. But it, it it I feel like the only way that works where the reader can look at those and almost kind of take themselves out of the scenario because it is so gray is because the setup is done in such a way that you truly understand, you know, just how dire these circumstances are. And, you know, bravo to you for setting the stage there. Yeah. And that, and that, 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 uh, that very pivotal moment that that you're referring to, like you say, there was a lot of, a a lot of setup, a lot of buildup and it was, it had all been building to that specific moment and event. And, uh, but yeah, no, I, I think, I think, you know, it, it was a difficult thing to put myself in their mindset um, to figure out what I would do in that situation, you know, but you got to push past that. I just kept pushing myself as a writer and thinking, how can I possibly make this even worse of a situation? And that's where it led me, pal. So, I mean, yeah, so that was, that was the situation that it took me to. Yeah. So we can go into as much detail or little detail as you want, but you have written a one romance, like strictly romance. I have. I have. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> go ahead. What was your question? I just wanted because I like don't hear that very often. I know, uh, I know Richard Layman did that too, but he used yeah. a pseudonym. Um, I don't think you did. No, I, in retrospect, I should have. <laughs> so I'm, I may re-release it under a pseudonym. It probably would sell better. You know, the thing is, the reviews I've gotten are all stellar. Oh, but okay. Yeah, I, do, I may re-release it under a pseudonym on purpose. I may do that soon. Yeah. So, well, do a different cover, man. Yeah, I'll change the cover. <laughs> Tell us how that even came about. I tend to get my titles first almost all the time. And then my subconscious rattles around and figures out what, what does that mean? You know, uh, you know what, 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 what the hell storyline is this? Um, I had the title free ride Angie in my mind for about three or four years before that finally came to fruition. You know, it's wow. things like that happen all the time. Samson and denial is another one. I knew he was a pawn shop owner. That's it. That's all I had, you know, whatever, but no lipstick in Avalon, uh, was just this title. I, I, I used to uh, have my ad agency in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And uh, occasionally I would do business lunches and there was a bartender that I knew named Molly. And she told me about growing up and summering in, in Avalon, New Jersey. 
And it just sounds cool. Avalon, you know, I've never been there. Avalon sounds magical. It might be a complete dump. I have no idea. But to me, it sounded like the freaking Magic Kingdom. And, and it's stuck in my mind. And No Lipstick and Avalon came to me. The title came to me one day. And I jotted it down. And uh, the first chapter I wrote, it just sort of was sort of a stream of consciousness type of thing. And the whole book is, is sort of that style. It's a very stream of consciousness sort of, sort of approach to things. But I wrote the first chapter and I set it aside. And I didn't touch it for probably another seven or eight years. Just one of those things. Wow. And uh, it was just one of those things. One day the voice woke up and, and uh, again, strong female lead character in that. And it was just ready. And it was one of those things. I think I wrote that in, uh, in two, I think two months, two or three months, I think. And wow. it just went from there. But no, the reviews are stellar. People love it. I get, I get asked a lot, are you ever going to do a follow-up? And I have, here's the thing. I have an outline, a loose outline called the sand priest of dewey beach and it's a it's about a guy you know a young couple in dewey beach delaware that you know and <laughs> i don't know i don't know so no i have notes but i'm like yeah i'll get there i'll get to that eventually <laughs> but now i've been thinking about re-releasing you know no lipstick in, in its own format with a pseudonym yeah i'll update the cover though most certainly is that a real beach dewey beach yeah yeah oh yeah yeah, was that yeah. is that near Lewis or Rehoboth? Uh yeah, I think it's down in that whole region down there. Yeah, yeah. Because that's like the only part of Delaware that I'm familiar with. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's right, right kind of along those lines. Yeah, right in that area. Oh, okay. Um Brennan, you want to go? Uh you want to jump in with something else? Yeah. All right. So I want to talk about doing readings. Um, because you you ask anybody who goes to a con, you know, who does the best readings and name Bob Ford pops up an awful lot. So <laughs> yeah. for newer authors, especially, let's gear this to newer authors who have never done a reading before. And what do they what do they have to concentrate on? What do they need to know to do something memorable and not put the crowd to sleep? You hit me at a good time because I just gave a how to do a live reading workshop at that time. <laughs> Uh, you know, I think that it, it's so many, you know, new readers, if you've never done a live reading before, they get really, really nervous. And, you know, it's there was a survey done years ago. More people are afraid of dying or no, more people are afraid of doing live readings than they are of death, which is ridiculous. Wow. Uh, if, if you're doing, you know, a live reading and it's, it's from your own work. You, it's really, the first thing is about approach. I mean, it's, it's a gift. Don't think about what you're taking away from the audience. Think about what you're giving the audience. You know, they're there to see you. They're there to hear what you have written, you know, and it's your opportunity to hold them captive for 15, 20 minutes and don't read the story perform the story you know i never ever ever sit in a chair or, or or stand behind a podium and give my readings ever when i'm giving my readings i step out from behind the podium and i work the room i'm delivering the story i'm performing the story and it really helps 
sort of as a, as a, especially if you're nervous, it helps you detach a little bit from that. Uh, clearly, you have to practice your ass off, know your material before you get there. And first person point of view stories are the most intimate thing you can read. Because when you're reading first person, you can just become the character. That's it. That's the easiest thing. You're not reading a story. You're just sitting down with a group of people around a campfire and you're telling the story. And that's what makes it so, so much easier. You know, now, not every time, you know, you're, there's going to be times, you know, of course, where you're going to have to read third person because that's, you know, mainly what, you know, most, most things are written in. For third person, I would really say, you know, focus on varying the voice. If you're reading backstory and narration, mm. low, lower your voice slightly. You know, if you're reading dialogue, don't be afraid to use voices. I use voices, character voices all the time. You know, Patrick, how often do you read bedtime stories? Uh, I, I do it pretty damn often man exactly, exactly. i do si- i do silly voices though if i did that for a horror movie <laughs> no one's gotta take me serious bob i don't know you might you might have the best damn reading ever if you do silly voices but brandon i'm you know the same thing you said you had children you know you, how often you read you know you you just gotta have fun with it don't be afraid yeah. to use voices that's a good into i slip into accents all the time uh when i did live readings of blood roses I sound like I walked in off the range, man. I mean, I, you know, I was reading it and doing the characters and doing the thing. Um, but uh, just have fun with it. Don't be, don't be so uptight and, you know, just relax and have fun with it, but just realize you're there giving the audience a gift. Don't focus about if I read this, they're going to buy my book. I'm promoting, I'm promoting, I'm promoting. Yeah, you are, but don't focus on that. Focus, you are giving the audience a gift of hearing what you're providing them right that day. You're giving them a taste of who you are as an author and what you what your talent is and your skill set is. Just focus on that. It'll all come back. I think the one of my big takeaways there, and there's a lot of good stuff in there. You know, you should teach a, you should teach a workshop on that. Good answer. Um, <laughs> is just the extremely obvious fact of the audience is that they want to like it. You know, you, yeah. you're not, you're not fighting with them. They want to enjoy the reading, you know, right. uh, it's, it's, it's like being a stand up comedian that people go because they want to laugh, you know, yeah. they, they go because they want to hear a good story. And, you know, it's, it's not your job to cram it down their throat. It's your job to perform right. it. Um, right. Yeah. Again, brilliant in simplicity. Patrick, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, so I've heard Bob talk about some of this stuff, but I think it's really good pointers because I've, I've never done a lot of reading and I have no problem talking to an audience, but I don't, I don't know what the fuck the mechanics are. So <laughs> like it's stuff, it's advice like that before we start recording, you were no wait when we were recording. I think you said that there's some good tips in the show. I can't remember if it was when we were recording. So if we weren't, you mentioned that. And this is one of those, um, really good suggestions and it's uh timeless because um unless people stopped want stop wanting to be entertained you mm-hmm. gotta perform it and that's really smart because it's it's kind of like theater um yeah yeah 
you know, because if you read it, and, and this is obvious, but if you read it all monotone, who the hell is going to pay attention? <laughs> no, it's not, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Not a two-year-old, that's for sure. No. no. <laughs> and, that, and that's the thing. I mean, literally the last, you know, the, the first time that most of us have been read to, it was to put us to sleep. <laughs> that's you hilarious. Know? I've never thought of that. Yeah. So, you know, and I've seen some really phenomenal writers um, that don't know how to read well. And list them. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and it's unfortunate because it doesn't matter how great the work is, mm. you know, if you're there to, to hear a live reading, and it, like you say, you read it monotone and they don't do anything to shake it up. Yeah, I've, I've seen audience members drift off and it's not their fault. You know, I've, I've seen them do the head shake, snap, you know, eyes back thing and whatever. And it's not their fault. It's it's this. This is what they're listening to that moment. All right, Bob. So in your experience, what's an uh, you know, if you're planning uh, a reading and you don't necessarily have parameters, what's uh, an optimum time to make your reading last? Right, right. Uh, usually hmm, I usually take the I usually try to target mine about the 20 minute mark. Um, that's usually a sweet spot for me, you know, and that's whether I'm reading an excerpt of a novel or a short story, you know, that that's about the sweet spot for me. And I need to, I practice it ahead of time, definitely time myself. So I know where, where kind of where I fall because, you know, traditionally cons used to be, you would share an hour slot um, and, and, you know, they would have five minutes for Q and a or something like that. Now it's kind of cut back to, two per 45 minutes. So you get, you got to hustle. You got to, you kind of get through the work pretty quick, but yeah, for me, I try to, I try to pick it around the 20 minute slot and practice it. I practice it. You know, um, I know where I can use a pause for emphasis when I'm reading it and pick out lines that really have an emotional punch, you know, a short story of mine, uh, Georgie is a very emotional, brutal story. And I know exactly in that story where to deliver certain lines to the audience that, that that's going to hit. And I, I pick them out ahead of time before I even start the reading. I pick out people in the audience. I'm like, I'm going to hit you and you and all. I'm going to nail you with that line. I already, I already know, you know, what, what's going to happen when I'm delivering. So, but yeah, about 20 minutes is the, is the, is the short answer to that. That's my sweet spot for the timing. Yeah. And again, you know, because we, we said, Hey, uh, give some advice to newer, uh, people who've never done a reading. Um, and I would imagine, uh, that 20 minutes sounds like an eternity, but oh, I bet it flies. Oh yeah. It, it does. When you, when you're, when you're having fun, you know, and if, if you're not such a confident reader and you're, you know, it's maybe it's your first reading or whatever, then cut it back a little bit, shoot down for 15 minutes, you know, because that way, and you, and you, you're going to gain confidence like with anything else. The more you do it, you just got to get through that first one. You just got to get through that one. Then, then you're good to go. You'll be a lot better the more you do it. Yeah. So this is already you know, like out publicly about the uh, Western anthology. Mm -hmm. um, and I would like, if you are okay with it, I'd sure. like to know for Blood Rose, um, something, because I wrote a short story, the Western and for me, the research, I was writing about this isolated family of two in uh, Montana, and I 
don't know anything about Montana. So I had to do a lot of research with that. The, the late 1800s and um, it was fun, but I'm wondering what your process was like. Mm-hmm. And, and if you want to tell a synopsis of uh, what Blood Rose is about. Sure, sure. Well, the process for Blood Roses for me, I started digging much like you did, even before I had a concept. I started digging into the vernacular of the old West. Okay. Uh, old sayings, old phrases, um, you know, uh, pushing up snakes. That meant you're dead. You know, you're underground, you're pushing up snakes, certain phrases like that. And I came across the phrase that was the, actually the original title uh, for that called soiled doves and soiled doves were prostitutes. I get it. I get it. Now it makes perfect sense, right? Yeah. Oh my God. Um, I I loved that (laughs) phrase. I thought, man, that's really freaking cool. I love that phrase. So I started learning the vernacular and the vocabulary at the time. I started looking into the weaponry because Mm -hmm. again, you know, if you do that homework and that research ahead of time, it just feels authentic. Then it just feels right. And, um, and my own, backwoods way of, of speaking with Bowden at times uh, that certainly came into play. I probably cheated a little bit. It may not be a hundred percent authentic, but it definitely works. And uh, just did the homework like that ahead of time. So I kind of knew and, and had an index file ready to know, okay, this was a yellow boy rifle. This was, you know, this was the pistols that they used. This was the, I remember looking up um, whiskey, you know, whiskey was used, it was existed. That certain type of brand of whiskey existed right. back then. You know, just certain things like that. And then digging into uh, the type of names of characters hmm. um, to what would be a fitting name. You know, did this name exist? Did it not exist? And there were certain things that I found. I forget there was one specific phrase that I used. But when I went back, I'm like, I got to double check this. The phrase itself didn't exist, you know, at the time. It was a cliche, it was a weird cliche metaphor type of phrase. It didn't exist until about 50 years later and it came over <laughs> from Europe. I'm like, all right, got to scrap that, you know, but it's things like that. But when I started, when I got past that homework and just dug into the idea of, of soiled doves, I knew I wanted it to be a Western, but I knew I wanted supernatural elements into it. Mm. And uh, the, uh, the synopsis was a, a brothel owner, um, a brothel owner lady. She, she comes over to the, the, the sheriff's office and because someone has found two of her girls dead and they brought them back, but they're not only dead, They've been uh, they've been messed with. There's rope burns around their ankles and the wrists. Oh God, yep. So they're in bad shape, and it just kind of spiraled from there. Again, this was one of those novels that, or novellas. I didn't really outline it. I just said, "Ah, this feels good. This idea <laughs> feels right," and uh, just kept writing and, and working on it. And it hit the word count that I was after. I mean, I think it came in around twenty five thousand words almost on the dot wow. and uh, it just it just felt right for for what it was was going but even in this i surprised myself a couple of times because i wasn't outlined 
And I love when that shit happens because <laughs> when a character does something unexpected, you know, I'm like, well, if it surprised me, I'm pretty sure it's going to surprise the reader when this happens. So yeah, this is, I'm going to roll with this and make it work. So, but that was a blast. I grew up watching Clint Eastwood and, you know, all, all the old spaghetti Westerns and, you know, it, it was just, I had so much fun watching Westerns when I was growing up. I have no idea why I never decided to try my hand at writing a Western before this, but it won't be my last. It won't be Good. my last by a long shot. I Good. That. I love, I love the cover though too. Seriously. Uh-huh. Look at that for audio listeners. You have to watch the YouTube yeah. version. That's yeah. beautiful. That's absolutely that beautiful. Just such beautiful artwork. Yeah. Um, speaking of like getting the right weapon and whatnot, uh, I had this one scene in my short and, it was an ice shack and uh, I was like, okay, well, did they exist back then? And what kind of blade did they use to cut into yeah. the ice? And it's a lot of weird shit. You don't think about yeah. until then. Uh, when we had Jeremy Hepler on uh, later, uh, earlier this week, mm-hmm. he was talking about how him and Kenneth Kane were going back and forth on, just is this accurate to that timeline and it was uh kenneth kane goes there was an indoor plumbing in this part during the like i think it was the 19 early 1900s this place in texas and jeremy's like i'm from here and no there was no in indoor plumbing until like the 1940s right um it's 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 bizarre it's really bizarre um Brennan, do you have any thoughts on that? Because you too have written a few westerns. Yeah, and it's you know you 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 hope you luck out and that people will write it off to you know well it's fiction so it doesn't have to be perfect. But you know somebody's yeah. reading it with a fine tooth comb just waiting to catch you if you make a mistake. Um, I got gotcha. you. <laughs> That's no, and I, I I think um, you know Bob. You mentioned I don't know why I haven't done this before because it's it's a blast. And what I had the most fun with, and I've got a novella coming out. I don't know when, um, but soonish. Um, so the uh, I, I can't I can't announce the publisher yet, but maybe it'll be out by the time this episode airs. But I found the dialogue to be the most fun to write, and. Um, but that's also where I'd sometimes get myself in trouble and have to, you know, go, go through like an internet deep dive of, you know, etymology. Uh, mm-hmm. Pat was one of my early readers. And I remember he called me out on, uh, cause I, I had some character use the word goofy. And apparently yeah. that was not a widely used term until right before the Disney character came into play. Um, oh. So now I know that now I'm a little more learned in that regard, but oh man, they're that's fun awesome. as hell. Right. Now in the in the dialogue, you know, it I realized because I had had a, you know, like I said, I had an index file of these are cool phrases that I really liked, you know, but I realized some of them, even though I liked them, there wasn't enough context in what I was writing the dialogue in at the time to make it work. Mm. So I had to strip it out and, and kind of rework it a little bit. And, it, and, you know, and occasionally I do this in my darker sort of crime fiction as well. I'll make up terms that don't exist, <laughs> you know, and as long as you use it in a way that makes sense to the reader, this is a believable term now. Back ass words. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, 
Um, it's one of those things, you know, uh, and I'm, I'm racking my head. I've been thinking about examples of this, but, you know, to create a new terminology for, you know, say, to say, for example, for a drug mule or something, you know, if you can create a new term for that and it makes sense in the context, suddenly in the reader's eye, that's a believable term. Of course. Well, of course, that's what they call a drug deal. You know, of course, why not? You know, so in the old West, when it's still, it's further from our actual, you know, everyday knowledge, I would say you can make up a bunch of terms and as long as it's used in context, <laughs> no one's going to know the difference because it's believable then. Yeah. yeah. Or even like, you know, using in dialogue, um, like analogies, uh, or uh, or similes, you know. I've, I I always love when I get feedback. I'm like throwing a, a simile in there, and somebody will be like, "Oh, that's that's good. Where'd you hear that?" It's like well, I made that up. That's yeah. not something they said back then. It's like, nope, all me. Um, yeah. But I'm but again, it. It, you if you present it properly in context, you can absolutely right. get away with that. Yeah. Hence, yeah. fiction. You know, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. At the end of the day, you could just say, "Hey, it's a fucking book. Did you like it?" <laughs> Did you like the story? Okay, shut up. <laughs> no, I've got others. <laughs> well, this can go in so many directions. But from the time you started writing, we've covered this in uh, one form. But from the time you started writing to now, are there any things notable, good or bad, or both that you've really noticed uh, have changed from both time periods? Yeah, Amazon is both a curse and a blessing. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it there are so many books that get published through Amazon. And unfortunately, a lot of those books have terrible covers. They haven't gone through really good editing process. And, you know, but but they're published. And unfortunately, they're right beside books that have gone through exactly that process of having a good cover design, having an editing process, taking the time and the care and the effort to make it as polished as possible. And they're on the same shelf as far as Amazon is concerned. It's insane. So the competition to do that is so incredibly intense. You know, um, on one side, if you have a decent fan base, sure, you know, you can put a book out tomorrow. And if you have that fan base in place, they all know where to find you. And that book's right there. It's easy. Click a button and, you know, do, do, your, do your process, your due diligence, but, you know, click a button and it's there. It's available in 48 hours. But you are competing with so many different things. Um, I used to see... You know, and there, and there still are a tremendous amount of small press that really do their homework. They treat their writers really well. They have their statements on time and, and it's good things. But then there are so many other small press publishers I've seen in the past that just couldn't, couldn't pull through. And it was, it was a damn shame to, to, to watch that happen. You know, the horror boom of the 80s was enormous i mean it was out of control how many horror novels were getting published and of course you know anything that rises that high is going to come with a terrible terrible crash so i don't know 
there's good and bad, but I think it's like anything else. I think it just runs in cycles, you know? So I just do the best I can to, to focus on the, on the good stuff and just keep my, keep my nose to the grindstone and keep writing away and just keep focused on the positive stuff, the negative stuff. It's never going to hang around anyway. So it doesn't matter. doesn't matter. Did I lose your audio? <laughs> nope. I muted myself and realized after I started talking, I, I was making a dumbass joke saying that's true. I work at a wastewater treatment plant and solids, you know, sludge eventually, you know, sinks to the bottom. So <laughs> there you, there you it was go. nice of your mic to mute you. Yeah, it knew it knew what it was doing. It's smarter than me. Brennan, um, I feel like you had something else and I don't want to cut you off. I, I was just thinking that that whole Amazon is a blessing and a curse is, I mean, that's, that's a whole episode in and of itself. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, uh, the, the obvious question is, so where do we go with that? What do you do about that? But there's no obvious answer to the no. obvious question. You know, do, do you put in place safeguards? And at that point, you know, then, are you really still, you know, open to uh, a variety of, you know, uh, people able to self-publish right. your, right. your, your, your right. the dreaded gatekeeping term gets thrown out there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, of course, like any mega corporation, they're going to take advantage of, you know, they're, they're going to take <laughs> a whole lot more royalties off your book than they really should. Um, mm -hmm. I, I mean, the only, the only, ideal solution would be a platform designed with the author in mind to, you know, help with the editing process to, you know, uh, give assistance in the cover design process and to not, you know, rake the pennies out of every little ebook sale you make. Um, so yeah, no, there's no question there. Sorry. Thought I could scrape something, but <laughs> <laughs> No, you were just some, you were just cementing the point, man. That's all. I was talking in circles until I came up with something and I hit the bottom of the well. And now you know it's like, so Brennan, uh, <laughs> do you want to jump to what are you reading? Yeah, sure. Now you know what it's like. <laughs> Hundred and fifty episodes, but you finally pulled a McDonough. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't like how everyone I apologize about life uses for my that foibles. as a <laughs> He says a verb for bad things. Uh, Bob, what are you currently reading? Let's see. The last thing I read was a, a uh, an as yet unpublished, unedited short story from John Bowden. Mm. Read that yesterday. And that guy just knocks everything out of the damn park. And then aside from that, I have a copy, whoop, have a copy of Drag You Down by Nathan McCall. And... Uh, I'm telling you what, he's really impressing the shit out of me. Uh, yeah. He's a cool dude. Yeah, I just, I just met him at the uh, AuthorCon a couple weeks ago. He's he's a cool dude. He's a great dude. But uh, yeah, I'm really impressed with that. But it's rare for me to be able to read much of anything unless I'm editing it. it it's, it's been a bit. It's yeah. Because you tell me when I ask about it, you say you're doing like 16 hour days sometimes. And I just don't understand that. Sometimes. Yeah. It's, well, it's switching. It's switching from my own stuff to working with John Bowden uh, currently, you know, or editing for John. Um, and then the, uh, 
the uh, novella that the uh, project that Chad he and I just finished you know I was mm. working my ass off on that and editing that down so yeah it was pretty crazy there for a little while but now I can breathe a little bit I'm I glad <laughs> you gotta chill yeah. before you burn out man burner yeah, yeah. Burn no, I got I'm about four uh, about four or five chapters into a new novel and this one I have to force myself to slow down on it Really, uh, this one has it has a big feel to it, like burner. So, but this one, I'm forcing myself to slow down on this one a little bit. I don't want to go through this one in a month rush. Uh, I'm forcing myself on this one, but so yeah. But now it's you know, it's like I say, it's the safest just to keep your head down and keep busy, just keep cranking. Malamin did that with a cape and ghoul, um, yeah. 500 words a day, yeah. Because you said it felt so big days. That's a slow and steady approach. Yep. Yep. Brandon, what yep. are you currently reading? Can't win a marathon and an all-out sprint. A um, couple things. So we have uh, Mr. Tyler Jones coming on next week. So I am uh, about to start. I, have, I can't tell you what it's about because I have not started it yet. But uh, this is the only book of his that I have not read yet. And I have loved Criterium, Almost Ruth, and I burned through his collection uh, burn the plans did not do that on purpose it's fantastic i mean it's um uh michael marshall smith wrote the introduction he says this is you know not being paid to do this but this is one of the best short story collections i've read and it is it's every every story fires on all cylinders um okay. so i'll promote that instead of the book that i just held up um I am also partway through and i i do not know how to say this author's name but echo by thomas old i'm gonna say hugh Velt. um i believe he's a danish author um and that's a tour nightfire book and it it's good so far it's it's jumping through like a lot of different um almost epistolary uh where it'll go through journals and then it'll go through like a more traditional third person narrative um and the voices are you know the, there'll be some places where it reads like a ghost story some places where it reads almost like something like uh like chuck polinick would write some places where you're just no idea what's going on uh but it's kind of about a haunted mountain um mm. if that piques your interest okay. and uh the the one i'm i'm just diving through right now is uh don oh, winslow's man. city on fire coming yeah. out in a couple of days actually um, and I just picked this up uh, yesterday and I'm already like 150 pages through it. Um, it does the, now it takes place in right around Providence. So like right down the street from me and he does maybe 20, 25 pages of building scenery and atmosphere and accents in as much as you can build accents through dialogue. And then the story just like rip roars into action. And like, I'm having, I, I usually have like five or six books going at once and, I haven't seen those other ones in two days because that's all I that's all I want to go with. That's awesome. Yeah, Patrick, so, how about you, sir? Yeah, um, I'm just starting this. Uh, Tyler Jones is almost Ruth, so I can't tell you what it's about because I haven't read it yet. Um, I just finished Patrick C. Harrison and Daniel Vope. I don't even know still if that's how you say his last name, but Volpe. Yeah, that was a joke. No, that's not right. No, I don't think it is. I don't think he's French, <laughs> but. Uh, they are coming out with a collection and it's Splatterpunk and it's a lot of, it's an excellent read, but there's, I can't, I could not eat 
and read that shit at the same time. It's just so fucked up mm-hmm. what they wrote about. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's all I got right now. Uh, Bob, where can people follow you? Uh, don't follow me on Twitter. I hate that app. Um, <laughs> now nah, you can follow me. You know, if you go to robertfordauthor.com, uh, that's where you can find my my most recent updates and things like that. Uh, I don't even remember my handle on Instagram. I'm more on there a lot because that seems to be a much more friendly environment <laughs> for me. But uh, but yeah, and and you know, like anything else, everything on the planet is on Amazon. So yeah, yeah. But robertfordauthors.com is the best place to find me. Excellent. Uh, and do you have any final thoughts? Uh, no, I just appreciate, you know, had a blast tonight. I appreciate you guys having me on the show. You know, I'd be happy to come in and uh, talk to you guys, you know, on air, off air, anytime. Had, had a great time. I'm going to jump in and Brian, you'll get the last say, sir. Uh, yeah, Bob, um, I love talking to you and I'm glad that we finally could do this. And I hope more people read Burner. Um, oh, man, I forgot to ask you about that story you told me uh, about how it got a jump. Do you want to talk about that real quick? Are you, where, where it got a jump and you talked to the person that gave you that jump in sales from burner. Oh yeah. 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 There was, that, uh, that was just, it. sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say, yeah. it's kind of, it's kind of like, kind of like a reminder for, you know, people that are readers and not writers to kind of, um, it does matter. Oh, yeah. 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 I was, uh, the uh, I guess over the past month and a half, I had noticed a really big spike in sales for Burner. And I'm looking around the internet going, I'm looking on Goodreads, I'm looking on Amazon, I'm like, I don't see anything, you know, and there's more reviews, like a half a dozen new reviews came in, and then it was 10 and 12. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? And I can't find anything anywhere. I don't know what's going on. So I'm down at the, at the uh, AuthorCon and a fan comes up who I'd never met and we're talking and she's telling me how much she loves Burner. And I was like, well, that's really cool. I, you know, I appreciate, yeah, I appreciate your kind words. I guess that's great. You know, I said, uh, I was like, it's gone through this weird spike in sales the last month. And she's like, that might've been me. And I was like, why, what did you do? And she posted on Facebook in a group called Books of Horror. And that was that was 100% it. That was the spike in sales. So, yeah, you know, like like any any especially any writer who's not, you know, a household name yet. Any fan who ever posts a review, you know, or, or posts anything like that or shares a book and talks about it. It is absolutely, utterly important and, and completely, you know. It does make a difference. And trust me when I say every author is incredibly thankful for, for anybody who does that kind of thing. But yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a very cool thing that she did and truly appreciated. That's awesome. Um, thanks for telling that story again, Bob. Yeah, sure, man. Uh, Brennan, any final thoughts, sir? Yeah, no, that's brilliant. I, I would say odds are if you're posting, you know, whether it's a, a positive experience reading a book or even just, I got this in the mail, look how, cool the cover looks yeah um every post like that is gonna get new eyes on that author on that you know on that cover on that on that book and you know even if it's just one potential sale I, i'll take one over zero every time <laughs> um 
Yeah, no, Bob, I want to echo what Pat said. I want to thank you for your time. We appreciate you uh, spending Friday night with us. Uh, and it's it's been a blast, man. We'd love to have you back anytime. Kick ass. It's been a blast for me too, guys. Yeah. Uh, listeners, next episode 146 is with the author of Almost Ruth and Criterium, Tyler Jones. Um, that's got to be, that guy's, that guy's a junior Polonic. And I mean that in the nicest of ways. Like, I feel like he's, he just says stuff that I can't, I'm too, not smart enough to follow sometimes. And he's super nice. So totally not taking a shot at him, but looking forward to that. Uh, listeners, as always, you have many choices in podcasts. Thank you for picking us. Thank you.